Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. A gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Mom or Pop, go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome, Welcome to the Dead Zone. Welcome back, all you late-night weirdos. That's Danny over there. I'm Whitney, and this is the Dead Zone Screening Room. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. We got another crazy road movie to talk about. Another one? It They just keep coming. <laughs> it makes me never want to drive ever again, ever. I I mean, I would have to agree. Terrible things happen. Terrible, terrible things. Yeah. Uh, this one, I think, at least for me, is more about the character. Yeah. yeah our yeah. bad guy. Oh, this is one of the best bad guys. I, I think ever introduced in film i mean, he's got to be up there in dare i say in like freddie and jason territory right he's pretty freaking creepy he's it, just got this I don't, sinister icky feeling about him it has a lot to do with that laugh yes oh my gosh that laugh yes uh, well, it's a great character. I really do feel like Wolf Creek is going to become one of those iconic franchises in it, it because it's more about the villain than it is the story. Yeah. Because yeah. quite frankly, the first half of this movie, much like Friday the 13th, is pretty boring. Uh, you're, you're just getting some backstory, figuring mm-hmm. out who these mm-hmm. people are, introducing your characters before things really get going. Yeah, a lot and, of setup. Yeah, and so it's really the second half of this movie where, where stuff gets good. But I'm excited to talk about all of it. Yeah, I am too. All right, well, just to recap, a few months ago, Danny and I inherited a traveling drive-in theater and were told to watch horror movies of our choosing to figure out what we want to add to the theater's vault and what to leave behind in the dead zone. The only other rule is to never be late opening the drive-in for those who are able to find us because, yeah, the theater moves around, it's never in the same place twice, and it's a mystery as to where it'll show up next. But if you can use your knowledge of horror and follow the clues in each episode, you might be able to figure out where the drive-in will show up next. And this month, in honor of travel and family and the start of the holidays, we are in the middle of a series we like to call Highway to Hell, where we check out horror flicks all about horrible road trips. They've all been pretty pretty awful. They, they just keep getting worse and worse. <laughs> <laughs> and this week, we are talking about the incredible Australian export wolf creek so creepy so creepy and of course before we jump into things now is the time that i should give you guys a spoiler warning we're going to get into everything here if you guys want to check out the movie beforehand it is available for free on tubi um of course it's going to have ads but if you guys want to rent it it is on voodoo prime youtube apple tv um and of course we always encourage you guys to watch it beforehand but if that's not your jam as always no judgment here we're going to talk about everything all the gory details, everything, it's all going to happen right here. Yeah, and speaking of those gory details, for those of you who are a bit on the squeamish side and like to steer clear of the ultra gore, uh, this is not going to be your movie. Yeah. Yeah, you just uh, you just skip on right ahead. <laughs> and maybe you just hear us talk about it. Yeah. Uh, because this one uh, is known in that kind of 2000 era where everything was 
all gore porn all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this one gets pretty bad, but uh, again, for us, but in the best way possible. Exactly. It's some good stuff coming. I'm excited. I am super excited. Well, let's get to the wiki. All right. Okay. Uh, and also, just to let everyone know, we watched the unrated version, which contains about five minutes of additional footage from the original theatrical version. So if you haven't seen the unrated and there's a couple times you're wondering what the hell we're talking about, that's what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> So, Wolf Creek is a 2005 Australian horror film written, co-produced, and directed by Greg McLean and stars John Jarrett, Nathan Phillips, Cassandra McGrath, and Kesty Morrissey. McLean wrote the screenplay for Wolf Creek in 1997. The original story resembled more of a straightforward slasher film, and McLean was ultimately displeased with the final product. But after seeing media on Australian serial killer Ivan Malat, McLean was inspired to rewrite the screenplay. The revised script was significantly anchored by the character of Mick Taylor. McLean later stated that he crafted the character of Mick based on archetypal, quote-unquote, famous Australian exports such as Steve Irwin, combined with darker national figures such as Malat and convicted murderer Bradley John Murdoch. He said, quote, the movie was really about... What would it be like to be stuck in this incredibly isolated place with the most evil character you can possibly imagine, who is also distinctly Australian, end quote. John Jarrett, who plays the character of Mick, was said to have gone to extremes in preparation for his role in order to emulate as close as possible the real-life serial killer Ivan Malat. He spent significant time alone in the isolated outback and would go for weeks without showering. I mean, welcome to quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, since the film was ambiguously marketed as being based on true events, I'll give you a quick synopsis as to what those events are. So Ivan Milan was convicted of a series of killings that came to be known as the Backpacker Murders. The murders took place in New South Wales, Australia, between 1989 and 1993, where the bodies of seven missing young people, aged 19 to 22, were discovered partially buried in the Belangelo State Forest. Five of the victims were foreign backpackers, three German, two British, and two were Australians from Melbourne. Malat was convicted of the murders on July 27, 1996, and was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences, plus 18 years without parole. He died in prison on October 27, 2019, never having confessed to the murders of which he was convicted. Danny covered this case on our other podcast, Creepy Caffeine. It's episode 59, if you're wanting further details. And then, of course, there's fellow piece of shit Bradley Murdoch. Murdoch is currently serving life imprisonment for the July 2001 murder of English backpacker Peter Falconio and the assault and attempted kidnapping of Peter's girlfriend, Joanne Lees. In the aftermath of the backpacker murders, Falconio's case quickly attracted considerable public and legal attention both domestically and worldwide. Falconio was 28 years old at the time of his disappearance. His body has never been found, and he is now presumed dead. Bradley Murdoch will be 74 when eligible for parole in 2032. 
So although the film isn't a direct retelling of either of these horrific cases, it does contain several oblique references to these crimes, including the setting of Max Mining Camp, which is called Navithalem Mining Company, which is a sort of palindrome of Ivan Malat, plus an added H. So, of course, palindrome is a word that's the same backwards and forward, like Bob. You read it forward, it's Bob. You read it backward, it's Bob. This is kind of the same thing. Uh, forward, it says Ivan Malat. Backwards, this one says Malat Ivan. And then they've added an H. Gotcha. That's interesting. So Wolf Creek was a low-budget horror made for around $1.4 million Australian dollars. Producer David Lightfoot has stated that the filmmakers wanted to make a $5 million film on a $1 million budget, which I think they accomplished. The film looks incredible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's shot digitally on the HD cam format and mostly handheld, aside from a few static composite shots. Filming took place over five weeks in Australia's winter months in 2004. The pivotal location in the film is that of the Wolf Creek Crater, located in Wolf Creek Meteorite Crater National Park, a real-world location that can be visited in northern western Australia, and that's wolf spelled with an E, not without like it is in the film's title. However, aside from some aerial shots of the actual crater that can be seen, the film was almost entirely shot in South Australia. The sequences in which the three main characters ascend the edge of the crater were shot on a nondescript hillside in South Australia, while beachfront scenes in the first 15 minutes of the film were shot in Adelaide, standing in for Broome. One particular location that stood in for Wolf Creek Meteorite Crater National Park had not seen rainfall in almost 10 years. However, once the crew arrived and shooting proceeded, it rained for three days straight. That's crazy. It forced the writer, director, and actors to incorporate the highly unexpected rainfall into the shooting script. According to McLean, the fact that it was raining and glooming in an otherwise dry, sunny desert gave the sequences a feeling of menace. So there is this whole point in the movie when they're driving up to this supposed crater location and it they start talking about how they can see that this rain is moving in Mm -hmm. and and all that stuff was added because of the fact that it started raining that that was never originally scripted that's crazy well the film shoot could get brutal at times for instance after running through the outback barefoot when her character christy escapes Actress Kesty Morrissey ended up with hundreds of thorns and nettles in her feet. Oof. Oh, God. And during the shooting of Morrissey's torture scene in the shed, her nonstop screams and crying discomforted and unsettled the crew, bringing several of them to tears as if someone was actually being tortured. In fact, her performance was so convincing. At one point when she and Gerard were performing alone while the rest of the crew filmed from outside, McLean became convinced Gerard had gone too far and that Morrissey's cries for help were genuine. So he burst into the shed only to find both actors stunned at the interruption. They're just like, <laughs> uh, we're doing our job. <laughs> but I mean, that I think that speaks to their performances. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I I would back that up. I would say that Gerard and Morrissey are the two finest performances yeah. in this movie. It's it's why you should t- tune in. They're they're absolutely incredible yeah. in this. Yeah. They're both really 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 good. 
Well, Wolf Creek premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, in the United States on January 24, 2005. It was subsequently screened in Adelaide, Australia in March 2005, followed by screenings at the Melbourne International Film Festival and the Cannes Film Festival. In Australia, the film opened on November 3, 2005, excluding the Northern Territory, where the trial of Bradley Murdoch was still underway and out of respect for Peter Falconio and in an abundance of caution, the Northern Territory Court placed an injunction on the film's release out of concern that it could possibly influence the outcome of the proceedings. The film would go on to earn nearly $28 million U.S. million worldwide. On Rotten Tomatoes, the film has an approval rating of just 54%, with an average rating of 5.7 out of 10. The website's critical consensus states, quote, Though Wolf Creek is effectively horrific, it is still tasteless exploitation, end quote. The film also has a score of 54 out of 100 on Metacritic, indicating mixed or average reviews. And audiences polled by CinemaScore gave the film a rare grade of F, on a scale of A to F, and as of April 2020, is one of only 22 films in the history of films to receive such a low rating. That's wild. Isn't that crazy? I mean, like I mentioned up top, do not get me wrong, the first half of this film, nothing interesting happens. I'm sorry. It's just, it's boring. Yeah. It's another one of those, like I said, Friday the 13th, where people are doing things, but it's nothing that's interesting to watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that really didn't sit well with a lot of people. Yeah. But if you can get through that and get to the second half, then it's gory good fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and critically, that is another thing. You know, especially back in the 2000s when this whole gore torture porn thing was in just about every horror movie. Yeah. It did not sit well with critics. Mm-hmm, they did mm-hmm. not like it when it was over the top gore. So that I think also, you know, people just weren't ready for it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that also gave it a lot of these initial bad reviews. You know, the the initial reviews seemed to swing to either end of the spectrum. You know, Paul Burns of the Sydney Morning Herald praised Jurette's performance in the film, ultimately deeming it exceptional Aussie horror, while Maura McDonald of the Seattle Sun-Times wrote that Wolf Creek was the first film she ever walked out of. And again, that was that uh, the gore. People just, <laughs> I just think they weren't ready. Yeah. And by today's standards, I mean, yes, it's gory. Yeah. We're going to see some stuff. It's, it's going to be bad, but it's kind of like par for the course yeah. by today's standards, I would say. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, there's, I think even whenever I watched it and, and during the rewatch, I never found myself being like, oh, wow, this really is over the top. Mm-hmm. That That's happened before when we've been watching the movie. And not like in a bad way, but there's been times that I've been like, oh, wow, yeah, this score really does go <laughs> really far. But this, I mean, I felt like it was pretty apropos for the situation they were in and granted yes some like some of the kills are pretty intense but that's leads to the character's past of our killer because of what he does for a job and everything like that he has these talents that he can do these like crazy insane kills Mm -hmm. but I never found that it was like I don't know too gory and maybe that's just my my standards for gore I don't really know but yeah I mean I can totally understand that if you're going into this movie and especially 
like you said, when the first half is so tame and we're just dealing with conversations and setup, and then we're thrown into this second half with a bunch of gore, I can understand the critics and, and viewers being like, whoa, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, because there's really no inkling in the first half of this film of what it's leading up to. Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't even get like a little teaser to that in an opening or mm-hmm, anything where mm-hmm. maybe we set up this guy and so you have an idea of what's coming and that never happens so when it does take a turn and all of a sudden it's just hyper terrible yeah (laughs) it's it can be pretty uh unsettling yeah for people if you're not ready for it Mm -hmm. well since its initial release wolf creek has become a cult classic and has been recognized as a distinguished example of the torture porn subgenre whose success initiated a substantial boom of australian horror films In a 2010 retrospective, Slant Magazine included the film in its list of the 100 best films of the past decade. And in 2018, Esquire listed it as the 14th scariest film of all time. That's interesting. Well, due to the film's success, a sequel was written and directed again by McLean. Wolf Creek 2, Electric Boogaloo, was released (laughs) in 2014 and had John Jarrett reprising his role as Mick. The Wolf Creek web television series debuted in 2016 with a second series in 2017. It, too, starred John Durant as Mick. This guy has made a whole career out of this one character, uh, and he should. I'm telling you, Mm -hmm. he's amazing. Yeah, He's one of the creepiest fuckers you will (laughs) ever encounter in film. Well, principal photography for a third film, Wolf Creek 3, was expected to begin in October of this year, but IMDb still has the project listed as in development. So, yeah, for me, this movie, it's all McTaylor. That's, yeah. that's what you're here for. It's like these Freddy and Jason and Michael Myers movies. That's what you come for. Mm-hmm. You could give a crap about the victims. You don't care who they are, what they're about. You just want to see the bad guy yeah. do what the bad guy yeah, does yeah, yeah, yeah. because it's so good. Yeah. And and that's what we're here for. We're here for Mick. Yeah. Yeah. He just is so, so creepy. He is. He's, he's good. I'm excited. <laughs> well, before we get to it, why don't you tell the folks what this movie is about? All right. Well, just a quick synopsis. It says... A chilling factually based story of three road trippers in remote Australia who are plunged into danger when they accept help from a friendly local. Christy, Ben, and Liz are three friends in their 20s who set out to hike through the scenic Wolf Creek National Park in the Australian Outback. The trouble begins when they find that their car won't start and they run into a local bushman named Mick Taylor. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) And that's where the trouble began. (laughs) And that's where it all started. The trouble starts with Mick. Well, we got a little ways to go before we get to Mick, but uh, we're going to have fun getting there. I'm excited. Okay. Are you ready to talk about this movie? Let's let's go down under. <laughs> let's head down under, shall we? <laughs> uh, also, I'd like to apologize ahead of time for two things. Number one, there is every possibility that I've already done it and will continue to pronounce names of people and places incorrectly. 
I'm just bad at that. <laughs> I've made efforts to look up, you know, see if I can find someone else pronouncing it. Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't, and I just got to wing it. So I'm going to do my best. I apologize if I get something wrong. Also, um, if you have listened to our podcast, you know that I tend to uh, go into accents. And, and that will probably include an Australian accent. But I must say my Australian accent is particularly horrible. So... Be on the lookout for that. <laughs> I again apologize. At least we get the apologies out of the way off the top. <laughs> there are about to be some fine Australian people that just go, what is she doing? <laughs> just know we love you. <laughs> we really do. We do. All right. Well, here we go. Our movie starts by telling us that the following is based on a true story. And then they tell us that 30,000 people are reported missing in Australia every year. 90% are found within a month and some are never seen again. That's a startling fact to start your movie off with. It really is. It's like, why go to Australia? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure the statistics are worse here in the U.S., though. Don't come here. It's terrible. Uh, We then open on the crashing of waves on a beach at sunrise and are told this is Broome, Western Australia, in 1999. We next see a young man attempting to purchase a car. This is Ben Mitchell and is one-third of our trio of soon-to-be travelers. We then get this Mr. Bean-looking motherfucker of a car salesman, and he's all, so you're traveling with two Sheilas. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> here it comes a mighty mon tells me they loosen up a bit and get real easy when they travel nudge nudge wink wink right right uh but ben's all uh yeah whatever johnny english <laughs> so he makes the deal and buys himself a sweet ford wagon and heads out uh so ben here is played by actor nathan phillips who has a few other creepy credits to his name including dying breed chernobyl diaries blood vessel and the devil below i really want to see chernobyl diaries that's not one that i haven't seen before but i've heard mixed reviews about it but i want to see it yeah it's been on our our watch list for a while Mm mm-hmm Well, back at the beach, we meet the other two-thirds of our trio, Liz Hunter and Chrissy Earle, as they're lying in the sand with friends, picking out postcards to send back home. So Liz is played by actress Cassandra McGrath, who has a couple of other creepy credits in Scare Campaign and Witches of Blackwood. And Christy is played by Kesty Morrissey, who can also be seen in the horror films Darkness Falls, which also stars Emma Caulfield who played Anya on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You know, I always got to throw in my Buffy references. Uh, And The Surrogate, which is currently in post-production. Also, fun fact, Morrissey was scheduled to take a personal backpacking trip abroad when she learned she had gotten this part. That's really ironic. It is ironic. (laughs) And quite frankly, I would never take a backpacking trip again. No, 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 no. Having this experience with Mick Taylor. Yeah, no. I'd be like, well, I'm glad that I got this this acting role because this is going to be my last faux backing trip ever, <laughs> ever, ever. I don't even want to look at a backpack. Uh, also, I, I think it's worth mentioning that this is a, a very uh, foreign concept to Americans. I mean, we understand the whole backpacking Idea. across Europe thing. Yeah. I mean, and, and there are some Americans who do that, but we just, we don't do that. No. We we just we travel across America. Yeah, we're so self centered. We can't even leave our own country. No, but that's just not something. For one, 
I mean, it is extremely expensive yeah. for us to travel all the way. Mm-hmm. So just getting there alone, we'd be broke. Yeah. Which is probably why you have to backpack because you can't. And they stay at these hostels. Oh, my God. That just makes my anxiety go oh, through yeah. the roof. And not because I think I'm going to be harmed in any way. Just having to deal with so many people that I don't know freaks my shit. Yeah. Oh, me too. And then also I would be afraid that I would be harmed. Yeah. You can add that to my list if you don't want it on yours. Well, I'll let you hang on to that one. (laughs) Me, I'm just like, there's too many people. I'm constantly concerned. I snore. They're going to not like that. I just, I, (laughs) just a lot of pressure. (laughs) A lot of people I don't know having to deal with my quirks. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'll sleep in the alley. back to it (laughs) next back with ben he has taken his new ride to a mechanic to give it the once over and make sure she's roadworthy i don't know a lot about cars but it just seems like all the guy is doing is making ben rev the engine a lot and just keep saying yep yep which i guess is helpful i don't know ben isn't really sure what the guy's doing either and he just wants to get going but the guy's just like yep Yep. Anybody remember that Storage Wars show where they would bid on the storage lockers? And there was the one guy who would always bid at the auctions go, yep. That's what it was like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And at some point he, he does say like, yeah, I've almost got it. Almost there or something like that. Oh, but yeah. Like, Ben's like, how long is this going to take? He's like, not long. I almost got it. And he's, and like, then he's yep. like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep revving the engine. Well, back again on the beach, Liz and Christy are teasing each other about which one has the crush on Ben. Liz says it's Christy. Christy says it's Liz. It probably doesn't matter anyway, since he claims to have a girlfriend back in Sydney. They then lament about leaving since they've had so much fun here. It feels like they've been there for two years, not two weeks. In the next scene, our trio of travelers is finally complete as Ben and the girls finally come together. Liz and Christy get to see the car for the first time. Liz jokes that she requested purple, but otherwise they seem pleased with what Ben has picked out. They load up the food supplies and Ben says, wait, wait, wait a minute. We is the alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) To which Liz and Christy tease that since last night's debauchery, they've decided to swear off the devil's elixir. Besides, they should really be in bed by 9.30 so they can get an early start out to Wolf Creek. But of course the girls are just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) Just joshing you. Just making a fun. (laughs) Cut to later that night and there is very much drinking and partying and a happy travels going away cake. Somehow Ben ends up drenched in beer, which then leads to everyone jumping in the pool Amid all the party craziness, our trio momentarily huddles together, and Liz jokes that she thinks they missed that 9.30 curfew, and they all just laugh. (laughs) Well, the next morning, we see Christy wake up in Ben's bed. Oopsie-daisy. It also looks like nothing really happened. They're sleeping head to toe, and Christy's mostly dressed. But she sneaks out of the room and makes it back to her own, only to find Liz isn't there. So Christy grabs her toothbrush and messes up her own bed to make it look like she slept there last night. Remember, Liz does actually have a little crush on Mm -hmm. Ben, so Christy doesn't want to get in the way of that. 
Apparently, this is one of the scenes that was originally cut out of the theatrical release and then added back in for the uncut version. McLean has said that he originally removed the scene because he thought audiences would read this as there was supposed to be a love triangle between Christy, Liz, and Ben, when in fact it was always set up just for Liz and Ben to be attracted to each other. It is a little confusing. It is. It's why, you know, you're like, why are they in bed together? I mean, like I said, it's obvious that nothing happened. Yeah, yeah. Or it appears that mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm. But still, he's right. It's yeah. like, why even bother to put that in? Yeah. Well, next we cut back out on that beach and we see Liz has fallen asleep in the sand, snuggled up with three of her closest friends. Uh, actually, we have no idea who these people are. Uh, and possibly she doesn't either. <laughs> uh, she decides to wash the night away and strips down to her skivvies for an early morning swim. Afterwards, she dresses and takes one final look at the view. So this scene here, remember, I said they filmed this in the middle of Australia's winter. So it may look warm on screen, but it was actually freezing cold. In fact, it was so cold for the scene where she runs out into the ocean that all of the crew were behind the camera in hats and gloves. And according to McGrath, when she got out of the water, she was so cold, she literally temporarily could not remember her own name. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. Can you imagine? They're just like... Uh, yeah, it's freezing cold. Please just go jump in the water. <laughs> but act and make it look like it's summer. <laughs> well, she did a damn good job because she didn't look cold at she all. She did not. I I have no idea how she didn't just stand there shivering. Yeah. But she just stands there looking at the, you know, water like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to miss this wonderfully warm place. Yeah. 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 Whew. Well, our next scene has our trio packing up the car and finally headed out on the road. And I have to say, these road sequences are where the cinematography and the HD cam work really shine. Will Gibson was the director of photography for this picture, and some of his shots are just outstanding. They really are. There's one in particular that we get as they first head out where we see the car traveling down the road through a bullet hole in a rabbit caution sign on the side of the road. It's hard to explain, Uh, but it makes the scenes very ominous and compelling at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's just beautiful. Yeah. It's very well done. Uh, and, and here's our title card. Did anyone else forget that we hadn't seen that yet? Because I sure did. Both times I watched this. When it finally pops up 11 minutes into the film, I'm like, oh yeah, that thing. We haven't seen that <laughs> Oh yet. yeah, credits and stuff. <laughs> so over our opening credits and some nice road trip music in Daddy Cool's 1971 Eagle Rock, we see the passage of time as our trio spends hours driving, laughing, goofing off, singing, you know, all those happy shots that let you know everything is normal. We're all getting along and they don't have a care in the world. But don't worry, McLean doesn't want us too comfortable. In a blink and you might miss it moment, as the group is looking at the map, we see a traveler's warning. I had to pause it to read it. It says, Warning to travelers, traveling in Australia's arid regions can be extremely hazardous, especially during the summer months, November through February. Always heed local advice as to road conditions and notify the police of your intended destination and ETA. Always carry plenty of fuel and water in the event of a breakdown. Remain near your vehicle. Why is Australia constantly trying to kill everyone? It seems... Very spicy there, you guys. (laughs) I feel like everything there is poisonous. And apparently you can just, what, spontaneously combust in the outback? (laughs) What is going on? 
going on? I want to visit there, but also I feel like I'm too fragile and I don't know if I can handle all that. I I mean, Australians have to be the toughest people on the planet. We watch one of our favorite things to do is watch like travel YouTube videos and we've watched travel um, like walk walkabout videos from like Australia. It's beautiful there. Gorgeous. I want to walk there. Sydney is a stunning, beautiful city. It really is. Yeah. I want to walk around. I want to look at everybody's beautiful faces. The beaches. But I'm just not built for this type of danger or combat. Spiders the size of dinner plates. I just, I'm, I can't. Snakes that kill you by looking at you. (laughs) Spontaneous combustion in the desert. I mean, it's a very dangerous and beautiful place. (laughs) And do people really inform the police when they have to travel through there? That actually kind of makes sense. I mean, like, it's smart. Right? Well, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, we're going to get into it. Uh, Our travelers continue traveling through the credits uh, until later that evening uh, when they arrive at a travel RV park where they're going to camp for the night. Uh, They never contact the police. Uh, I feel that's their downfall. (laughs) It seems like that would have come into play here and things could have gone better. Heed the map's warning. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Well, that night, the three gather around a campfire and they marvel at all the stars that are visible when you're this far outside of a populated city. Ben then regales them with creepy tales of UFOs, but Christy thinks it's all bullshit and they head off to bed. So this scene in which Ben is telling the story about the alien lights, although we see a two minute edited version, it was all actually improvised by Nathan Phillips and it originally went on for over seven minutes and was shot entirely in one take. Oh, wow. In fact, a lot of this uh, early part when it's just kind of them dialoguing mm-hmm, and in mm-hmm. the car that they said that that was all kind of improvised. Yeah. Well, the next morning, they wake, pack up, and get back on the road. Later in the day, as Liz is driving and Ben and Christy snooze, she sees a sign that says Emu Creek last fuel for 800 kilometers. That's 500 miles, meaning once you pass this point, you will not be able to get gas for another 500 miles. That seems so dangerous. I, in our car, a full tank of gas will get us like 380 miles. Yeah. I, I just, it, this is a foreign concept to us Americans. Yeah. I'm, and maybe I just don't travel much because it, that just sounds like so much to me. <laughs> it is a lot. Which is why we also see that they fill up a large portable gas mm-hmm. tank to carry with them. But still, my point is... <laughs> We are so car dependent here in the U.S. that there are very few places here that you can go that you would find yourself in a situation like this. I think maybe there's a few stretches of highway in places like Nevada and Montana or Wyoming, you know, somewhere that you would go a ways without seeing a gas station. But that would be more like maybe 150 miles, which is like roughly 250 kilometers. It's just crazy to me. And quite frankly, super scary. Yeah. Like you could be seriously fucked and stranded, which I think is what that warning was for. It's like, look, be prepared. You don't want to get stuck out here with dinner plate spiders and sneaky snakes. Sneaky snakes. Combustions. Too many things. Australia doesn't want you in its outback. Yeah. (laughs) Leave it for the danger animals and you guys stay away. Yeah. 
yeah, I think that's what's, it just feels so uh, like isolating because it just, yeah. you know that there's not going to be anybody out there. Yeah. That, that right there is the horror movie. Yeah. You don't need to add scary Mick Taylor on top of that. Yeah. It is alone already terrifying yeah. to be stuck yeah. in the middle of nowhere. Oh God. It just whew, gets my heart rate going. Well, of course, Liz pulls in so they can fuel up. Ben tends to the petrol while Liz heads to the traditionally disgusting public toilet to freshen up. While the gas is pumping, Ben grabs the camcorder out of the back seat and does a particularly awful Captain Kirk impersonation. But soon, Graham the attendant comes up with his giant teeth to take over the job <laughs> of pumping the gas and everyone feels awkward, including the audience. It's like, oh, hi. What's your name? He's just grinning. Graham. It's <laughs> like, okay. Hey, Graham. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Thanks for stopping by, Graham. <laughs> well, next, Christy comes over to have herself a smoke next to the car where gas is being pumped. This doesn't seem safe. That's the only safe spot to do it. <laughs> well, she tells Ben that someone has a crush on him. And Ben says, yeah, no, it's the attendant, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> Which is hilarious. But no, of course, it's not Graham and his enormous pearly whites. It's Liz. Supposedly, Liz has a crush on Ben, although we really haven't gotten that impression uh, because it's not played that way. I mean, at no time do you ever get that feeling. Yeah, I mean, it, you kind of get it like from her to Christy, like the conversation's always happening between them. Yes. But she never like portrays that towards Ben at all. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to say. The only way that we know that she has a crush on Ben mm -hmm. is because Christy says so. Yeah. So we're taking her word yeah, for it. If Christy because says so, then I say, <laughs> fine. She could tell me anything and I'll believe it. Yeah. I wonder if like, like <laughs> if this was real life, Ben would have been like, really? I had no fucking idea. <laughs> You're not alone, Ben. None of us did. <laughs> so she proceeds to tell Ben, who it turns out also has a little thing for Liz, that he needs to sort out whatever it is he's got going on with this alleged girlfriend in Sydney and if he dicks Liz around, she'll kick his ass. So the two of them then head inside to pay where they meet up with Liz. There are also three local men sitting at the table inside who have taken an interest in Liz. Once Ben comes in, one of the men named Baza calls him over and asks if Ben's girlfriends would be interested in a little bit of a gangbang. And they all just laugh. It's so funny. <laughs> the guys then say, we just want to make sure it's all right with you first. And the chuckle nuts all laugh again. But Ben just smirks at them and says, good on you, fuckhead, and walks away. <laughs> but head alpha dick here ain't letting it go. And he's like, what'd you say? To which Ben just says, um, nice smile you've got. And the yokels laugh some more. But here comes Graham stepping in like a superstar badass. And he says, Baza, don't be a dickhead. Baza tells Ben, see you later, sweetheart. As our trio heads out, gets back in the car, and gets back on the road. Old Graham's stepping in, saving the day. Thank God for Graham. Got Ben's a wuss. Because that Baza's a jerk. He don't like creepy gas station guys. <laughs> it, it really, that should be a thing. You should know if you hang out in a small group at a gas station, you're probably creepy as fuck. <laughs> Stop it. Don't don't talk to ladies. <laughs> Just don't talk. Go home, <laughs> get a hobby. 
Uh, by the way, Baza here is played by actor Andy McPhee, who has a few other creepy credits to their names, including Scratch, Puppy, Six Plots, Nazi Undead, The Dead Center, and The Faceless Man. Ooh, creepy. Well, we get some more driving, and the group starts to comment about the weather moving in. Uh, so by the time they make it out to Wolf Creek and the entrance to the trail that leads to the crater, it has started to rain. Here's that rain that we talked about. They park the car and get out to prepare for the three-hour trek in front of them. They load up the food and supplies they'll need into their packs and start off on the trail. But before leaving, Ben finds an animal skull and teases the girls with it before setting it on a post. We get another fantastic shot here from Will Gibson of the skull and the sign for the walking trail to the crater, both of which are soaked in rain. It's very foreboding and gives you that sense that something bad is getting ever so closer to our trio of travelers. I'm scooting closer and closer to the edge of my seat. (laughs) Well, next we see our trio making their trek and they eventually arrive at the crater's edge. They marvel at the size of it, and Ben tells them some guys discovered it scouting for an oil company in 1947. So quick side note here, a very eerie coincidence occurred for the second unit crew that was sent out to get footage of the actual Wolf Creek Crater. Since the location was many hours from any town, the small crew decided to camp out of their car at the site after shooting. Nope. During the night. (laughs) Nope. A mysterious stranger showed up in a truck to investigate. No. The stranger indeed looked very much like the character (laughs) of Mick Taylor right down to the rustic truck. I would literally (laughs) pass away. They said the stranger left, but the crew was so spooked by the unexpected encounter, they drove an hour down the road before finally stopping to camp for the night. I would have just kept going. Fuck that. I'm not stopping anywhere. I'd be like, well, funny enough is I'm awake now and I could never (laughs) sleep again. Yeah, I'd be like, how far to the airport? Because I'm leaving the country. (laughs) That would terrify the shit out of me. Especially because you know, like, there's nobody out there. Yeah, so why is this dude just showing up in the middle of the night? Mm -hmm. No. No, thank you. No. Not a fan. (laughs) Take me out of the ball game. I'm not playing. Well, back to our trio. Uh, They try to have a little picnic, but the rain is being persistent. Liz takes off on her own for a bit with no explanation as to why. And she really doesn't do anything either. No, I thought she like had to pee or something. But then we just see she's just sitting there by herself staring at the crater. Okay, antisocial. (laughs) I mean, same, but don't come on a trip with people if you don't want to hang out with people. (laughs) Seems illogical. Well, we then see Ben make his way up to her. The two sit there awkwardly, not talking for a moment before awkwardly kissing each other. They then laugh, and Liz says she always wondered what that would be like, and then they awkwardly sit there again. It's such a weird scene. Yeah. Like, There's why? not like, I just don't feel the chemistry. No, not at all. It's like, why did she go off in the first place? Why was Ben out of breath the whole time? Did he run up there? <laughs> was it a big climb? We don't know. And she obviously wanted to be alone. Why are you even up here? (laughs) And then the kiss out of the blue. I feel like McLean scripted this romance 
and therefore was hell bent on including it in the story, even though it never goes anywhere. Yeah. The scene here is literally the most we get out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all I kept thinking about during the scene, too, was the fact that, like, Christy was just down there by herself. Because it's just the three of them. So now these two are off making yeah. out and Christy's just, <laughs> what okay, is she doing? picnic for one, I guess. Yeah. Well, in the next scene, we see the trio arrive back at the car. Both Christy and Ben's watches have stopped right at 630, which is weird and never explained. Yeah. I, I kept thinking, are we adding like a supernatural twist well, in here? The only thing that I kind of gleaned from that was the watches stopped and that kind of also explained why the car wouldn't, like it was sucking battery power, all battery power. But yeah, but what is? Like there's supposed to be some supernatural force around That's the crater because yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's Mick that fucked with the truck and made it so the truck wouldn't, their yeah, car yeah. wouldn't start. Yeah. So that still doesn't explain why they're watches stopped did he also sneak in and stop their watches and we just didn't see him that makes sense yeah he's a sneaky fuck yeah i don't know it was just a weird thing that they included and we never come back to it yeah it's never mentioned again well they go ahead and pack up and leave but appears like you said the car won't start and i mean it's completely dead not even a click when they turn the key so Ben and Christy get out and take a look under the hood, but they both can see that they have no idea what they're even looking for. And it's like dark and rainy and muddy. It's like, oh, it's just the worst. It's, yeah, not conditions you want to be in at all. So the group prepares to hunker down and camp in the car for the night. Well, later that night, our trio is still trapped in the car as it continues to rain. Ben wonders out loud if the watch battery's dying and the car not starting could be the work of UFOs. Liz doesn't like the turn of the conversation and tells Ben they don't need to be talking about that right now. But then Christy starts to see what she believes to be lights off in the distance. The others don't believe her at first, but then they too see the lights and they're getting closer. They all start to get nervous, not able to tell what's headed in their direction. Liz is close to full on panic and asks if they should run. Ben, who's also acting like a little wuss, tells her to stay put. But the lights keep getting closer and closer. But then Ben says, hold on, it's a car. I hear the engine. And he gets out and steps into the headlights and the roof rack spotlights of a large, heavy-duty pickup truck. The driver gets out. He, too, now steps into the headlights and says, what the bloody hell are you mob doing out here? Scared the shit out of me. As everyone gets in a good laugh. Ben tells the man they thought he was aliens. So the guy takes a look under the hood for them and tells them he should be able to get them out of there pretty quick. Whew. Sigh of relief. They make some small talk. We learn that Liz and Christy are tourists from the UK, but Ben is an Aussie. And they're on holiday traveling across the country on their way to Carnes, ultimately. The man turns out to be quite the character. He calls Sydney the poofta capital of Australia and then tells Ben, he's just playing with you, Tiger. <laughs> Never been out there myself. <laughs> I'm terrible at this. He then says to the girls, lucky you Sheila's are traveling with a bloke. Can't be too careful. <laughs> he then does something to the battery that makes it spark, which makes everyone jump. And he says, nothing wrong with the battery, <laughs> which makes him laugh. And oh... What a laugh it is. <laughs> it is the creepiest. I, I Oh, God. It is. I can't even describe it. Well, next we see our trio off to the side as the guy continues to look at their car. 
They think their late night savior is hilarious. And he reminds them of one of those guys from the Outback Australia shows like Crocodile Dundee. But then the girls give Ben a hard time and say, hey, you're Australian. How come you don't talk like him? But before he can answer, their bargain basement Crocodile Dundee comes up and asks, do you want the bad news or the really bad news? He basically tells them that the car is fucked. He has the parts and the tools to fix it. But they're all back at his camp down the road a bit. He'd be happy to give them a tow and could probably have them fixed up and back on the road by morning. Otherwise, they're welcome to sit around here and hope someone else comes along. It seems like a pretty clear choice, but the trio is tight on cash and they're worried the guy's going to want too much money. So Ben asks the guy if he can tow them back into town instead, if it's not too much trouble. But the guy's all... Look, I'd I'd love to help you out, but you're wanting to go north, and I'm heading south. Bit of a bugger. (laughs) So Ben finally just cuts to the chase and asks how much the guy's going to charge. And the dude's like, is that what you're worried about? I'm not going to charge you, you idiot. (laughs) He's all like, you amuse the bloody bejesus out of me. (laughs) (laughs) So off goes Ben, and they all pile in the wagon, which our mystery man hooks up to his tow truck, and they head out. We get several exposition shots that let us know that they've been on the road for quite a while. The girls start to complain that it seems like they've been driving for hours. Ben says it shouldn't be too far, even though he said that about an hour ago. But he assures them everything is fine, and the guy said it was going to be a bit of a drive. Eventually, we finally see them pull into the guy's camp, which just so happens to be located at an old abandoned mine. It's here we see the sign for Navithalem Mining Company, that nod to Ivan Malat. So, unbeknownst to the crew, the abandoned mine here used for filming had actually been the site of a real-life murder of a woman. The production prompted a protest from locals who erroneously thought the film was going to be about those events. But I guess when they found out it was about different murders, they were fine with that. They're like, oh, okay, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, not that murder. It's other murders. Oh, then that's fine. Go ahead. Film all you like. Murder away. (laughs) I don't understand the logic, how it's okay. Whatever. (laughs) Now, even though we are not privy to the introductions, by the time our trio arrive here, they already know our mystery man's name. So it's only fair you should too. So this is none other than our very bad, but in the very best possible way, bad guy Mick Taylor. Mick here is played by actor John Girat, who would remain in character between takes, by the way. Oh, God. <laughs> Can you imagine? Just no. be like, hey, John. Hey. I'm going to make a hit on a stick. (laughs) I just want to know if you wanted a Diet Coke or something, man. It's cool. You could chill out. I can't imagine, like, coming out of my trailer and being like, hey. And, yeah, him just being, I would just, (laughs) never mind. Ooh, I see you're busy. I'll leave you to it, sir. Well, John has several other creepy credits to his name, including Next of Kin, Dark Age, Rogue, which was Greg McLean's next feature following Wolf Creek, Bad Behavior, Needle, Shiver, 100 Bloody Acres, Wolf Creek 2, Electric Boogaloo, Observance, Boar, and The Possessed. However, most Australians probably recognize John for co-hosting the Home and Lifestyle TV program 
Better Homes and Gardens in the 1990s with his then-wife, Noni Hazelhurst. During the show's run, the high-profile couple divorced, and John left the show with Noni staying on as host until 2004. Can you imagine fucking Mick Taylor giving you gardening advice? Mm -mm. No, I cannot. Right, first we're going to trim your shrubs, (laughs) and uh, then we'll make your head on a stick. (laughs) (laughs) Also, ironically, he doesn't like horror movies. I mean, he's been in enough of them. Yeah. I guess they pay the bills. Where does he draw his inspiration from? Because he does a pretty damn good job. He really does. Uh, Also, if you listened to last week's episode, you know that Wolf Creek is one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite horror films, and he's a huge fan of John Jurat, who he has hailed as one of Australia's best actors. He even considered hiring John for the role of stuntman Mike in his film Death Proof. Of course, the role went to Kurt Russell, but Tarantino still paid homage to the film by having the title appear on a drive-in theater sign before being obliterated by a car crashing through it. Tarantino and Gerard did get to work together, though, when John appeared in Tarantino's Django Unchained. Additionally, the idea for Mick to have a creepy laugh was Gerard's own, which he says took him four months to get just right. But he also claims to have created a detailed biography for the character. However, he has never revealed to anyone what those details are. Ooh, that's interesting. That would be fascinating. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Especially for someone who is such a method actor. You know, if he feels he needs to stay in that character Mm -hmm. to really, you know, harness that intensity all the time, you know... He came up with some sick shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd be real curious to know what it is. So Mick gets them all towed in and parked, and the group all gather around a fire outdoors. Mick's property consists of several rundown metal buildings and plenty of junk and car parts strewn about. Ben thinks the place is amazing and can't believe the mining company just walked off and left all this stuff here. Mick assures them there's plenty of places like this all over the outback. Thousands of places people have just forgotten about. He's heard tales of blokes getting lost on their own farms and properties so big it takes six days to drive across them. In other words, we really are out in the middle of fucking nowhere. Mick offers them all some water, which Liz is grateful for since they were in short supply, and Mick says... Nothing like rainwater from the top end. No idea what that means. <laughs> we also learned that Mick used to work on one of these properties out here as a head shooter. You know, clearing vermin, roos, horses, pigs, buffalo, you name it. He used to fly in with the helicopters, flying in low, sometimes taking out 50 head in one afternoon. We're out five volts on a 303 one year. Pigs are different, though. You got to get close with pigs, get the dogs onto them, then go in with a knife, get up under them. Got to be quick, though, or you lose your guts on this tusk. I once seen a boar take a pit bull's head clean off. Little legs still pumping away. Mick then says, fair dinkum. (laughs) Ben repeats, fair dinkum. And everyone in America goes, what the fuck is a dinkum? Of course, this is Australian slang, and I had to look it up. Apparently, it's used to proclaim something as fact or truth. So I would say if I ever met Mick Taylor, I'd straight up shit myself. Bloody fair dinkum, mate. (laughs) All that checks out to me. Fair dinkum. I think so. Fair dinkum. (laughs) 
Well, Ben then asks where Mick lives now. Mick says he gets around and you never know where he might pop up. (laughs) So creepy. Ben says how he must love the freedom. Hanging out in nature and shit. Cruising around the bush saying stuff like, That's not a knife. This is a knife. And Ben and the girls laugh. But Mick doesn't. He doesn't seem to think it's too funny at all. And he just kind of keeps staring at Ben. The laughter dies down and Mick continues to stare, (laughs) making everyone uncomfortable until Mick uncomfortably asks Mick, um, so what do you actually do now? Mick still stares for a bit longer until finally saying, well, I can tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. And then breaks off into that damn signature laugh. I hate it so much. He's so creepy. Well, the group then has a random round of burping and farting. I don't know what this scene is. (laughs) And then Mick goes off to work on their car. As he leaves, Ben mocks him by repeating, but then I'd have to kill (laughs) you. Which just makes Liz uncomfortable, worried he can hear them. So she gets up and goes over to where Mick is working on the car to thank him again, to which he says, no worries. Then she has to add, of course, it'd be great to get going as soon as possible. Mick looks up at her and pauses ever so slightly before smiling and repeating, no worries. Oh my God, it's so awkward. It's <laughs> it like, is. yeah, bitch, I'm sure he's aware you'd like to get out of here. But here's the thing, regardless of whether or not this man is a terrifying serial killer who's about to murder each of you, if someone offers to fix your car for free, you don't get to determine the timeline. Yeah. It'll get done when it gets done. You just gotta wait it out. It's called manners, Liz. <laughs> I don't like her. (laughs) I'm not a fan of Liz. So Liz heads back over to the fire where everyone has laid their sleeping bags out for the night. Liz gets settled in to go to sleep and then asks Ben to move the esky away from the fire. Of course, us Yanks are like, what the fuck is an esky? (laughs) Turns out for Aussies, esky just means cooler. It's the actual brand name of a cooler, but the brand name became so synonymous with coolers that any cooler is just referred to as an esky, much like Kleenex and Band-Aids are brand names here in the States instead of facial tissue and bandages. That makes sense. Yeah. But looks like Ben is too tuckered out to move anything and has fallen asleep, which Liz quickly follows. The next morning, we see that esky didn't fare too well next to the fire and is half melted. We then get an extreme close-up of Liz as she wakes up for the day, but her eyes convey confusion as we get a wide shot to reveal Liz is tied up and gagged and appears to be inside of a shed or small building with no sign of Ben or Christy. She manages to remove her gag, but her wrists and ankles are zip-tied. She's able to get herself standing and she makes her way to a small window to look outside. She can see their Ford wagon is still there, but she doesn't see anyone else. We watch as the day passes. Eventually, that evening, she finds some broken glass on the ground. Don't know why that took her all day to find. The shed is maybe like 20 square feet. She then uses the glass to cut her way through the zip ties. Once freed, she climbs out the window, sure to make as much noise as possible. Yes, very loud. Well done, Liz. (laughs) She makes her way to the car, but turns out Mick didn't do fuck all to fix it. If anything, he's made matters worse by pulling out pretty much all the parts that make a car go vroom. 
uh, can confirm you're fucked. Liz is like, yeah, I don't think this is going to be as quick as I thought. We actually wanted it done a little bit sooner if possible. Well, this isn't right. (laughs) Well, now it's really not going to run. Come on. Sir, can I speak to your manager? You are an awful mechanic. You said you had the parts. I didn't realize that you were going to take all the parts we had and just add them to your collection. This is backwards. Well, she then notices there's stuff still around the now extinguished campfire and can see what appears to be blood all over Ben's sleeping bag. She finds her shoes and gets them on so she can make a run for it. But before she can get anywhere, she's stopped dead in her tracks by the sound of Christy screaming. Christy continues screaming and wailing as Liz determines which building she's being held in. Liz looks through a window and at first doesn't see anything. We can just hear a radio with an announcer talking about a solar eclipse, which I didn't catch what he was talking about the first time, and I only mention it because it's going to come into play later. So stick a pin in it. So Christy starts screaming again, and Liz can now see her through the window. She is beaten and bloodied and tied to a post in the middle of the room, but she can also see Mick is in the room, slowly loading bullets into a rifle's magazine. Christy continues to scream and beg for Mick not to kill her. He loads the magazine, raises the gun up, and yells, Boom! And then he does his little Mick laugh. He pulls the trigger again, this time firing off around, but purposely misses Christy as she continues screaming. Mick laughs again and is all, <laughs> The look on your face... He then begins to sexually assault Christy, which finally springs Liz into action. Liz goes back to the car and sets the whole damn thing on fire and then throws a propane lantern into the smoldering campfire, causing it to explode. This draws Mick outside, who tries to put the fire out, giving Liz a chance to sneak in the building where Christy is being held. Liz makes her way to Christy, but is unable to untie her before Mick returns, so she has to hide under a workbench. Mick cuts Christy down and asks her if she likes to play. He then says, see that stupid bitch over there, as he motions to, and we see a dismembered corpse hanging on the wall. Mick says, she loved it. She lasted a good few months. We were great together. Till she lost her head. And Mick laughs, that creepy fucking laugh. It has just become so sadistic all of a sudden. It's just like this movie completely turns on a dime. Mm -hmm. And it's just like everything gets horrible. Yeah. (laughs) Just The moment Liz goes to sleep, her world just is turned upside down. And ours. It's just, it's a completely different film. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Mick then gets back in Christy's face and threatens to cut off her tits, but not before we hear a rifle cock. And now it's Christy's turn to laugh in Mick's face as it's revealed that Liz has grabbed Mick's rifle and is now pointing it at him. He tries to bullshit her and tells her it's not even loaded, but she just yells at him and makes him back away from Christy. He then tells her that a rifle in the wrong hands can be dangerous. He then yells at her to give him the fucking gun, but it startles her and she pulls the trigger, a bullet discharging right into Mick's neck. 
Mick drops to the ground and Christy and the audience start screaming, kill him, kill him. <laughs> Liz goes over and gets the gun ready, but can't figure out how to work the bolt action and can't get another shell loaded. So she just ends up beating on Mick's back with the butt of the rifle. What? At least whack him in the skull. You want to incapacitate him, not mildly inconvenience him with bruises. <laughs> Choose violence, Liz. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But Liz gives up and instead tends to Christy, getting her untied, dressed, and the two of them head outside and get in Mick's pickup. Liz gets in the driver's seat but quickly realizes there are no keys. Now she has to go back inside and check Mick's body and check his pockets, which she does, and we get a nice tense moment, worried if he's going to wake back up or not. He doesn't, though, and she's able to grab the keys, get back outside, and start up the truck. The headlamp comes on and lights up the front of the building, just in time for Mick to appear in the doorway with a shotgun and take a couple of shots at them. Liz manages to get the vehicle in gear and drives forward, crashing into the front of the building, causing Mick to drive out of the way. Liz then throws the truck into reverse and backs out, and the two of them drive off the property. The girls keep driving forward, not really on any discernible road, and it isn't long before they see headlights behind them. Christy is still screaming, telling Liz to go, when all of a sudden, Liz slams on the brakes. Liz just insists on doing the opposite thing of what you should do. (laughs) However, this time, there's a good reason, as she almost drives over a random cliff that's just, (laughs) there's just a cliff out here. But instead of now turning the car left or right to avoid said cliff, they abandon the vehicle and decide to push it over the cliff in the hopes Mick will think that they died in the crash, which I suppose is a plan. But it seems (laughs) like staying in a working and drivable car is a lot safer than just being stranded in the outback. Yeah. I mean, we all saw the warning on the map, right? I I didn't, but I believe you. (laughs) There's spontaneous combustion afoot. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, at the very least, get as far as you can. If you don't have the 50,000 gallons of gas that you're going to need to get back to society, get drive the truck as far as you can and and then wreck it. And yeah. that make it seem like you wrecked. Like, get farther away. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like they should keep going. But. Yeah. Well, they push the truck over the cliff and then climb a ways down the cliff face, clinging to the side in order to hide from Mick. Moments later, Mick arrives and approaches the edge of the cliff, silhouetted by the headlights of his own vehicle. He shines a flashlight down to the bottom and spies the truck, as Christy nearly loses her footing, causing Mick to swing the flashlight in their direction. But he doesn't see them, and then heads off to find a way down to the bottom to check for survivors. The girls take the opportunity to pull themselves back up to the top of the cliff. So for this scene, since there was no budget for stunt people, both Cassandra McGrath and Kesty Morrissey themselves were actually strapped into harnesses clinging on the side of an actual cliff. Additionally, the director of photography, Will Gibson, was also put in a harness to capture the scene. That's scary. That's a little scary. That'd be frightening, I think. This is a horror movie. Why are you going to be so scary? <laughs> it's not to be scary for real. <laughs> Only scary in the movie. Fake scary. (laughs) Well, once back on top, the girls check Mick's car, but he's taken the keys with him. Liz notes that there are several keys on the set of keys she has and figures Mick must have more cars back at his camp. 
Christy doesn't want to go back, but Liz says they're in the middle of fucking nowhere and they need a car. You had one, Liz. You had a car and you just pushed it over the top, but whatever. (laughs) So now they're headed back to the damn camp. Well, next we finally see Ben. It's only for three seconds, but hey, at least we know he's alive. But that's all we get. Yeah, just a little teaser. So next, back with the girls, Christy is struggling to keep up and needs to stop and rest her battered body. Liz tells her she's going to have to go on without her. Christy begs her not to leave, worried Mick will catch up to her again. But Liz tries to reassure her that he won't and that she'll only be gone for five minutes. But then she tells Christy, if I'm not back in five minutes, just head that way and points off into the darkness. Why do you keep doing that? You just, you say one thing too much and it ruins everything. (laughs) Also, it's such an unbelievably heartbreaking moment. Christy is absolutely defeated at this point. Mm -hmm. And terrified. Uh, Oh my God. I I really got the sense that they both kind of realize in this moment that they're probably not going to see each other again. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, can you imagine being in this situation? Yeah, because I found myself like thinking what would I do would I really want to like leave her and say you know you stay here I'll go or is it worth being like look I'll just stay here with you we'll figure it out do you try to make her go with you you know it it, there's no good possibilities here there really isn't but I mean I I truly believe that Liz was in the right she has got to try and find them a vehicle yeah but the heartbreak yeah of poor Christy who is just she's terrified yeah terrified because we only saw a small portion of the horrors that she was going through. There's no telling what happened before Liz finds her. Yeah, yeah. And so this girl is, she is, she is done. Mm-hmm. Mentally, she is done. And just knowing that her only sense of safety is now abandoning her. Yeah. Ugh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And it's just so well played by Kesty Morrissey. Yeah. She it really does a is. phenomenal job. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So Liz makes it back to the camp and starts going through the buildings looking for another car or weapon. She makes her way back to the building where Mick was holding Christy and sees a collage of photos and news clippings of other tourists who have gone missing in the area. Obviously, this is not the first time Mick has done this. Liz also finds a revolver and ammunition on the workbench and takes it. She enters another building that turns out to be one of the entrances to the mine. Remember, Mick's camp is the site of an old abandoned mine. She goes in and finds a ladder leading down and for some reason decides to climb down it. I I thought she's trying to escape. What the (laughs) fuck could possibly be down here that can help you? Nothing. (laughs) There's literally no reason anyone would do this. So, of course, she ends up slipping and falling to the bottom, only to discover she is surrounded by corpses. Yay! (laughs) Oh, so that was the corpse pit. It's the corpse pit, yes. Every house has one, don't they? I have three. Oh, Lucky you. Well, you know. I don't know why you're bragging. I do like to entertain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she, of course, freaks out and goes running out of the building. Now, this is apparently the second scene that was cut from the theatrical release, but then added in back for the uncut version. Supposedly, this scene was cut because it was too much added gore in an already gory movie. 
but it, it really isn't that bad. It It's pretty dark in there. So everything we see is just what's captured in Liz's frantic flashlight mm-hmm, movements mm-hmm. as she scrambles to get out of there. I, I just remember like seeing hair, worms and bones. Yeah, I didn't think the scene was particularly more gruesome than others I've seen. Yeah, it, it was it was pretty, pretty basic. And like you said, it is really dark. So I think that that has a lot to do with it because I it is tough to see what's going on down there. Yeah. Exactly. Well, next, Liz makes her way back to another building, and this is the one where all the cars are. However, she doesn't immediately jump in and attempt to get one started and get the fuck out of there. I I mean, she is on like a five minute timer here to get back to Christy. (laughs) This whole time we were watching this movie, I just kept going, it's well past five minutes. It is well past five minutes. Oh, yeah. Same. Yeah. Uh, Instead, she has to look around the place, uh, which she says Ben's name. So I'm assuming she's looking for him. But there is still no sense of urgency here. I I need her to act like she's in a dire situation. And she's just walking around like she's checking out an exhibit at the Louvre. (laughs) Well, she makes her way back to the back of the garage and ends up finding shelves and closets full of money, photos, IDs, credit cards, clothes, all kinds of belongings from all those dead people at the bottom of that pit. She even finds some of their own belongings, as in belonging to Liz and Ben and Christy, including some of their photos and Ben's pocket knife. Uh, Fun fact, this collection of victim memorabilia, so to speak, that Liz finds includes numerous photographs of Greg McLean's actual family and friends. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, We then see that Liz has discovered a box full of camcorders. She picks one up and hits play because I'm sure Mick takes the time to charge all the batteries every day. Uh, (laughs) We see footage of a traveling family at the Wolf Creek Crater, who also discovers that their car won't start. The footage also shows Mick showing up to help them out, the family then being towed by Mick, and even shows him offering them water with the same line, nothing like rainwater from the top end. (laughs) I still don't know what that means. Well, next, Liz picks up another camcorder and presses play only to discover this is Ben's. And we can see the moment back at Emu Creek where they stop to get gas and Ben gets that attendant Graham on film. But he also captures something else on film that we didn't notice before. And that's Mick's truck. Bum, bum, bum. It can clearly be seen in the background as Liz pauses the playback on the moment. So Mick has been following them since at least Emu Creek, well before they even arrived at Wolf Creek. So all this tells us is that this is Mick's M.O. He fixates on a car of tourists for whatever reason. I mean, he said before, they're like ruse. They're all over the place out here. And being a head shooter, sometimes you've got to thin the herd. Uh, So he picks his victims and he follows them until he finds an opportunity to sabotage their car. He swoops in as the charming Australian hero, tows them back to his place, drugs them with the water, and bing, bang, boom, Bob's your sister. Another group of tourists goes mysteriously missing in the dangerous outback terrible terrifying i hate it if only these people had heeded the warnings of the maps and notified police it feels like this movie could have been avoided (laughs) yes had they just looked at the map a little more 
closely because I didn't see it. So I would have been them. Unfortunately, well, I wouldn't have because I wouldn't have been backpacking. You would not have. No, this would this would not have been a thing you would have enjoyed. No. Yeah. Well, next, Liz finally decides to get a move on and checks the cars. Jeez, woman, you've already been fucking around for 10 minutes, and that's an edited version of everything you've done. <laughs> Clearly, your five minutes is up. <laughs> Christy's back in it, wherever home is. <laughs> she, yeah, she has traveled halfway across the world. <laughs> well, she gets in one of the cars and starts systematically trying to eliminate keys until she finds one that works. Lo and behold, the car actually turns over. Liz leans her head back against the headrest of the driver's seat and takes a deep breath, almost as if to say, thank God, let's get the fuck out of here. But before you can say, your decisions ruin everything, Liz, that fucking laugh comes from inside the car as we see Mick lean forward into the light from the back seat. Holy shit, he's been waiting for her the whole time. I hate it. This is my favorite scene in the whole movie. It's so great. It's so creepy. He then thrusts a knife through the back of the front seat, which exits through Liz's abdomen. He pulls the knife back out and Liz fumbles to get the door open, her body rolling out of the seat and onto the ground. Mick gets out of the car and starts walking toward her as Liz pulls Ben's pocket knife out of her pocket and wields it toward Mick. But Mick just laughs and says, Hey, it's like your little mate said before, you know. That's not a knife. This is a knife. As he shows her his much bigger knife and pulls it back to swipe at her, Liz puts her hand up in the air defensively. And as Mick follows through with that knife, he takes off several of her fingers as we see them fall to the floor like spilled Vienna sausages. Also hate it. <laughs> <laughs> the sound they make. Just yes. that plop, 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 plop. Yes. <laughs> well, Liz is screaming in pain, to which Mick says, Settle down, that's not going to kill you. I got a bullet in my neck and I'm not whining, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to do something, Lizzie, so you don't try and run out on me. It's a little trick they used to use in the Vietnam War so they could take prisoners and they still get the same information out of them, but the little buggers didn't escape. Well, needless to say, old Two Fingers Liz is not dealing well with this turn of events and is just screaming her head off. Mick comes over, picks her up like a rag doll, and headbutts the shit out of her, to which he screams in her face, That's for fucking wrecking me fucking truck, you bitch! <laughs> He's so mad. Oh, my God. He then bends her over and says, now, this little procedure is called making a head on a stick. Because once your spine's severed, as Mick takes his knife, plunges it into her lower back, twisting it back and forth. Well, that's what you are, eh? A head on a stick, and he lets Liz's limp body fall to the floor as she gasps for air, unable to move. That whole sequence is what I'm here for. It's so intense. Oh my god, it was brutal and creepy as fuck. He did not come to play in the scene. Oh my god, it, and it's what elevated Mick Taylor to something more than just a murderer. Yeah, yeah. He is a fucking sadist. Yeah. I mean, everything we have learned about him to this point has told us 
that he is a sadist. But this is the first time we see how far he's willing to take it. And it is shocking. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we had this tease earlier with this headless corpse on the wall, you know, him, uh, insinuating that he kept her around for a while as this quote-unquote plaything, And so, I mean, that's messed up. That tells you he's fucked up insane. But it's not until we see him do this in this moment, you realize, oh, this is what he did to the other girl. Yeah. And why, you know, she was his quote-unquote playmate Mm -hmm. for a month. And now you realize this is now Liz's fate. It's horrifying. Yeah. Absolutely horrifying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It takes it to a whole nother level. Oh, yeah. Uh, not a good one. Well, next, we are back with Christy, who at this point has been waiting for five hours rather than five minutes. <laughs> Finally, she's just like, look, I don't have a watch, but three different newspapers have been delivered, so I think I should get a move on. <laughs> <laughs> so Christy heads out in whatever direction. She runs and runs till morning light finally making her way to a road. She runs down the road for a while until she can't run anymore, and she collapses to the ground in exhaustion. But soon she hears something and turns, finally spotting a car off in the distance. But you know we're all thinking the same thing, and we start saying to the screen, don't do it, don't flag that car down, it's going to be him, it's going to be him, don't do it. But it's not him, it's a real, regular, non-murdery fellow, and he hops out of the car immediately to help her. He gets her to lie down in his back seat and goes to the trunk for a blanket and a thermos of coffee. But when he places the thermos on the roof of a car, we hear a and see a small hole appear in the insulated bottle where the coffee starts to spill out. The Good Samaritan looks at the leaking thermos, confused, and then looks off into the field across the road. We then hear a gunshot ring out, and the guy's blood gets splattered all over the car as he drops to the ground dead. Christy, hearing something happen, sits up and gets out of the car. We next get a shot taken through the scope of a sniper rifle that has Christy lined up, so we know Mick is nearby. Christy walks to the back of the car and finds her good Samaritan shot through the eye with his brains splattered all over the pavement. Oh, my God. It's It's fucking wild. So many brains. Uh, She then gets behind the wheel only to discover the keys are still in the trunk of the car. So she has to get out and get them. But when she does, she sees a car driving fast to catch up with her. I hate it. She knows it's Mick, and so do we, and she grabs the keys and gets back behind the wheel. Mick turns onto the main road where Christy is and brings the car to a stop, allowing Christy time to get the car started and get a head start. It's game time for him. The head shooter back on the hunt. Christy gets the car started and takes off desperately trying to put distance in between her and Mick. But Mick takes off and is traveling in a car with a faster, more powerful engine. So it isn't long before he's caught up waving at Christy in the rearview mirror just to taunt her. He pulls up alongside her and starts making lewd gestures toward her. But Christy keeps screaming at him to fuck off and eventually swerves her car into Mick. 
which Mick wasn't expecting, and it causes him to lose control and run off the road. Christy, finally seeing her opportunity to leave Mick behind and make her escape, continues down the road laughing in relief. But Mick isn't going to be defeated that easily, and he pulls out that sniper rifle and takes out her back tire, causing Christy's car to run off the road and flip over. Mick drives up to where Christy's car has stopped and gets out. Disoriented, Christy climbs out of the wreckage and tries to crawl away. But Mick has had enough play for the day and shoots her in the back. And just in case you were wondering if she could have possibly survived, he walks up and double taps her. Mick then loads the bodies of Christy and the Good Samaritan in his trunk and torches the Samaritan's car before heading back to his camp. Next, we are back with Ben. Finally, we see him in a mock crucifix somewhere in the mine. His ankles aren't nailed, but his wrists are. However, it's not the larger nails that are usually depicted in a crucifixion. These are much smaller nails, which, I mean, don't get me wrong. It still looks like it hurts a hell of a lot. Obviously, this movie is not shy about gore, though, so I I really didn't understand the choice for these teeny tiny little splinters in his arms. Like, we just saw these girls get tortured for half an hour. Liz is now a head on a stick. We have no idea what Ben's fate has been. And when it's finally revealed, he basically just has a couple of mechanical pencil leads sticking out of his arms. No, I don't buy it. (laughs) Now, we do see there is another corpse on the wall, also in mock crucifix. But this dead guy appears to be missing his lower half which I'm guessing was caused by the absolutely frenzied Rottweiler caged in front of Ben. So, I mean, that makes more sense. Yes, being eaten alive by a dog would be, well, it would be bad. (laughs) It doesn't sound like a good time. (laughs) But now Ben has to actually pull his arms off those teeny tiny nails, which also conveniently have no heads on them. So it's really like pulling out toothpicks from your ribs, (laughs) which again, not comfortable by any means, But I'm not really feeling this is as bad as it could be. You know, like, I feel like Ben got off kind of (laughs) easy. Well, Ben gets the uncooked spaghetti noodles out of his arms and makes his way out of the mine. He finds something to tie off his itty bitty wrist wounds and takes off into the outback. I mean, he couldn't even take two minutes to have a look around for the girls. He's like, they're fine. They'll figure it out. I got this figured out. I'm sure they'll they'll figure theirs out. They're probably waiting for me back in town. I, I should just get going. <laughs> so we next see Ben walk a lot. It goes on for a while. Uh, it's implied that this is over the course of some time. We're not exactly sure how much time, but we are shown that there is a total solar eclipse during the course of his walking. Why? What is the point of including a major event such as a total solar eclipse here? They even tease that it was going to happen by having the radio announcer talk about it that we overhear for Mick's torture shack. It was just so fucking random Mm -hmm. and has nothing to do with anything. So I just don't understand why it's even been included. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I thought, okay, well, maybe just at that moment it would be helpful if it turned dark so he could get away from someone chasing after him. But nothing. It just... There's just an eclipse, and then he just continues walking. (laughs) It's so bizarre. But there you go. (laughs) 
It happened. We saw it. It happened. I report it. We move on. Anyway, eventually Ben is overcome by dehydration and the elements and the alien solar brain waves from the eclipse, maybe. I don't know. Uh, And he passes out on the side of a dirt road. In the early morning sunlight, we see the silhouette of a man in a hat standing over Ben. And for a split second, we think Mick has caught up with him. But it's not Mick. It's just two Swedish travelers traveling the outback in their orange Volkswagen bus. And they pick up Ben and take him to the small town of Kalbari, where he is airlifted to a hospital. We then get a quick shot of Ben being taken into custody as the screen fades to black. We were then shown a series of title cards that read, quote, Despite several major police searches, no trace of Liz Hunter or Christy Earle has ever been found. Early investigations into the case were disorganized, hampered by confusion over the location of the crimes, a lack of physical evidence, and the alleged unreliability of the only witness. After four months in police custody, Ben Mitchell was later cleared of all suspicion. He currently lives in South Australia, end quote. We then get one final shot as Mick Taylor, rifle in hand, walks off into a beautiful Australian sunset. Fade to black, roll credits. And then we never slept again ever. (laughs) And then for the rest of our lives, we just hear Mick Taylor laughing. (laughs) And it is horrifying. I do have a couple of little things to add here at the end. In the scene where Ben is being loaded onto the plane to be airlifted to the hospital, we have a Hitchcock moment as our director, Greg McLean, plays the cop who helps put Ben on the plane. Oh, fun. Also at the end, when Ben is rescued by the couple in an orange and white combi van, in the U.S. we call it the Volkswagen Microbus, Uh, This pays homage to Peter Falconio and Joanne Lees, the real-life victims and survivor of Bradley Murdoch, on whom this story is partially based. Peter had obtained an orange and white combi van for the couple's planned trip through the Northern Territory. That's also very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that he put those references in here. Mm hmm I think it's interesting because I'm curious, like, you know, it's different whenever you're telling the story of, like, a true crime incidences and it's like a a documentary or something like that. But, yeah, it is interesting to take, like, elements of that, of, like, true crime stories and put them into this fictionalized story, although, yes, it is based on true events, but it is so loosely based. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's based on true events in the sense as those were murders by a you know crazy sadist and these are murders yeah, yeah, by yeah. a different you know that's really the only thing that links them yeah so yeah it's it's just an odd choice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well all right there you go that is our movie one of my favorite now movie villains i absolutely think mick taylor is terrifying yeah and it's that whole deception thing that Mm -hmm. that charm that he has Mm -hmm. you know that australian charm that they talk about and you really think he's just this you know good old country local boy who just is a little goofy and backwoods or in this case outback but you know really he's a horribly horribly sick person yeah yeah and he does such a good job he has such an um uh a good ex- face that does really good expression. So whenever mm. he's like, you know, like putting on that charm and that happiness, he does, he does like a lot of like 
winks and kind of like cheeky grins and stuff like that. And then, yeah, the moment he kind of makes that turn, you can see all that shut off on his face. And yeah, I think like you said, that that's the deception that is just so sinister feeling. And it just makes you get shivers down your spine because you just don't know who you're dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think I need to reiterate the fact, you know, I'm not kidding when I say the first half of this movie is slow. There's just, it's not a lot happening. It's, there's just not a lot of interesting conversation or anything really of note that goes on. So for me, this movie really doesn't start until about 45 minutes in. And that's when they finally arrive at Mick's camp. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, when all hell breaks loose and it just becomes a horror fun good time if if you don't mind the gore it is quite a bit yeah uh for me i'd give it at least until i'd say it really starts kicking up when they get into that emu creek situation because then we're kind of met with like okay now we're dealing with people that you know don't really care about the rules and regulations of society which would be like you don't haggle women in in a gas station right in mm-hmm. front of so we're dealing with people that are out on the outliers of society so they're kind of you know can sure. be rude mm-hmm. or you know whatever uh so we have that confrontation so for me i think that's where it kind of kicks into gear now yes we have that lull where we're kind of going into the crater situation but it's interesting because for me that's where i noticed that the filmography and everything starts kicking in although i really do like the uh shot that you had mentioned about the bullet hole Mm -hmm. um I love that shot but I really do enjoy this crater situation we got going on I think it's really cool and uh and then it just everything goes off the rails then (laughs) but I do say for me I think at least the the gas station there in Emu Creek that's where it kicks up for me yeah at least I get a little bit of teaser action and then yeah it goes up from there but yeah I I think it is just a lot of setup and everything like that and I think it would be I don't know this just for lack of better words but uh would be a little bit better if there was more chemistry between the 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 characters just like we were talking last week with Death Proof these people were so good at having such organic feeling conversations that we were totally fine dealing with these um, back and forth because we felt like we were in it we felt mm-hmm. like this was just hanging out with friends yeah we didn't get that feeling with these people right um and so I think that's why it felt like it was dragging because it was just like okay we're just listening to these people just chit chat and it was a lot of like you know on, along the road trips that was switching places so and so would drive so and so would sleep so and so would take over driving so and so would sleep and it's like we can only watch that for so long <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely uh it's a very good point I had mentioned that uh, McLean had had them do a lot of improv work, just mm-hmm. kind of uh, improving some of the more casual moments as if they're supposed to just be like friends hanging around. And I also know that this movie was filmed chronologically, meaning everything was filmed in the order that we watch the scenes, mm-hmm. the one scene right after the other, which means all these scenes that they are quote unquote improving, making up this conversation as if they've been friends. These are actors who have been hired for this job and at the beginning of the project don't know each other very well. Mm -hmm. So you're telling them to improv and, you know, act out these stories of these people who really haven't worked together Mm -hmm. and and maybe don't have that kind of flow established. So I I think that was a detriment in Mm -hmm. those scenes when early on they really could have benefited more of having a structure 
to follow in a scene mm-hmm. and and that could have helped those seem more natural I yeah. think and and it just really showed how unnatural it was that they really didn't know each other that well yeah. and so that came across and it just all felt awkward and mm-hmm. weird mm-hmm. yeah and I think that's where the, the second half kind of benefits because we do kind of lose that the need for all that or you know that conversation mm-hmm. and we're just focused on trying to get the hell out of there and yeah at that point it's just all screaming yeah <laughs> keep ourselves <laughs> safe yeah, exactly <laughs> Well, this this once it got gone was one hell of a ride, and we got some prompts to get to. We do. All right. Well, what did you have for your popcorn spiller? Uh, so usually my popcorn spillers happen off the top of the movie, um, and I like. I well, I don't want to say I like for them to because I don't really I don't have a preference, but they just tend to because usually I'm kind of like you know on pins and needles kind of curious about what's going on I had seen this movie before this was not my first watch um so I was fairly familiar with what was going to happen and everything although it's been literally since it was in theaters that I've seen it I mm-hmm. saw it in theaters haven't seen it since um so it was kind of like rewatching it um but for me my popcorn spiller didn't come till much later in the movie and that was whenever we have Mick in the back of the car. Yes. <laughs> I, as soon as you had mentioned going on and on about that scene, I was like, oh, she's going to enjoy the fact that this is my popcorn spiller because it was just so, so intense. Because, And I know for me, I literally, like I said, I was audibly while we were watching it being saying it's been five minutes. It's been five. I was stressed. Yeah. I don't know why, but this timer thing, I was like, it has been longer than five minutes. You need to go check on Christy. Yeah, because and I think, again, that all speaks to her performance we are so on christy's side how terrified she Mm -hmm. is to be left alone so we are very concerned for her Mm well-being so when liz says i'll be back in five minutes god damn it you better be back in five minutes because we need you to check up on christy who is freaking the fuck out justifiably (laughs) so yeah whenever we're kind of like focused on just her getting back and she finally gets this car started and she kind of breathes that sigh of relief we all breathe that sigh with her and then as soon as we're kind of coming down we hear that creepy laugh yeah that fucking laugh i just want to throw my popcorn at the tv at that point yeah so yeah, that's my popcorn spiller. How about you? What well, that was mine too. Same, same, same. Hundred <laughs> percent. In my opinion, there really isn't a. There's no jump scares in here. No. So no. there really wasn't anything. I think that was a literal popcorn spiller, yeah. as in made me jump and mm-hmm. scared me. So yeah, I just had to go with what I thought was just the creepiest fucking moment. Yeah. And it. Oh, it. It was good. It's it was so good. good. Yeah. 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 So who was your scene stealer? Frickin' Mick Taylor. <laughs> Who else is it going to be? I mean, my God, you are going to build a huge franchise off this character. Yeah. He's amazing. And, you know, I don't know how much longer Jurat's going to be available to do it, but I, I say milk it for all it's worth. Get the movies in now. He's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, for sure. Mine ended up being um, Christy. Which was basically just yeah. our two main characters we yeah. were talking about. And I I don't want to sit here and say that Liz and Ben were, were terrible or whatever, but there really was just this heightened, and I keep talking about chemistry, but I really think that, especially in movies like this, where you're, you're dealing with high intensity situations, sometimes it can come off as there's no, and this is going to sound silly, but chemistry between the victim and the killer and in the aspect of like this, the killer can just be sitting there spouting off stuff kind of into the ether Mm -hmm. and you have no, I mean, you do, you feel bad for this person, but you're not 
you don't have that gut feeling, you know, that heart wrenching right. feeling. Christy just does such a good job of just her screams and her wails. And like you said, you know, the people legitimately yeah. thinking that she was being hurt <laughs> during um, recording and everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that speaks a lot to, to her character and everything and in her acting just it was all really well done. So, yeah, I was. I was pleasantly surprised again just because I, like I said, watched it in theaters and this was basically re-watching it for the first time and re-reminding myself um, of everything. And I don't remember walking away the first time with as much appreciation for her or the cast or the movie mm-hmm. as I did this time. Yeah. So, yeah, I was ex- I was really excited to rewatch it. Yeah, I, th- I thought she did phenomenally well as well mm-hmm. and just very believable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You, you really believe this girl had been through something mm-hmm. and you just wanted to make it better for mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, what did you have for your gorgasm? Lord knows there was plenty to choose from. <laughs> so mine uh, probably was the chopped fingers. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And not, I mean, not that that part's particularly gross, but there is like a part where, uh, and it's really fast, but right after she gets her fingers cut off she like wraps her hand Mm -hmm. there's still one floppy finger hanging on I don't know if you can if you noticed it but I noticed it and I was like I'm not okay with just we just need to take care of that one I know it sounds bad I know it does I know you want to save it but we can't just have that guy flopping around we can't the one floppy finger we gotta take it off we gotta get rid of it and it's probably just a little piece of skin. If yes. you just tug on it, yep. it'll just pop All up. I'm saying is maybe just, yeah, I don't know. We've just lost about 20% of our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> just, nope, nope, sorry, cannot, cannot talk about the floppy finger. <laughs> but I was like, I was watching it because, of course, like, I'm so engaged by these, like, flying fingers and the sounds that yeah. they're making and everything. And then, yeah, she's like, ah, and grabs her hand. I was like, oh, she's gripping the little floppy finger. Where are you gripping that for? Where's it going? Oh. So, yeah. What about you? Oh, well, I didn't realize the finger was floppy. Uh, so I missed out on that particular joy. <laughs> I do want to watch it again, at least that moment, just to see that. That sounds cool. Uh, but I went with the uh, Good Samaritan's Eye and Brain yes. Blowout. That was definitely one of my options as well. It, that scene... Is so, I think, for me, it speaks so highly of um, Mick Taylor's marksmanship. Uh, it, it, I think, it's one of those things that I was just like, "Holy shit, this dude means business." Yeah. I mean, we've seen thus far this guy's. I mean, he has none of this has been a joke. He's right. been very serious this yeah. whole time. I don't know why that's the scene that I was like, "Oh, okay, he's actually he's pretty serious this <laughs> oh, we're time." We're for real, all right. <laughs> but yeah, whenever he shoots that that cup, I was like, "Oh, okay." And then yeah, when she walks out and it's just straight through the eye, yeah, knowing the distance he shot that from, I was just like, "Oh my gosh, this yeah. dude's insane." Yeah, because in that moment we don't realize that's where he's been shot mm-hmm. because when the impact comes, we do see blood splat on the car Mm -hmm. but it's like all over the window and you can't tell where the wound was Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so when it's revealed to us at the same time that christy sees it's like oh fuck yeah that is bad yeah it is real bad (laughs) plus what is my life right now that i say things like brain blowout and floppy fingers (laughs) what is happening in the world today that this is fine i mean are we okay probably not but we're we're doing it. We're doing the thing. 
So who ended up being your memorable mortality? Oh, shit. I had to go with head on a stick. I know that that technically she's not dead right at that moment, but you ain't coming back from that. Uh, and you've got about a month of hell before yeah. you actually die. And that is just, that is horrifying to me. Yeah. It's absolutely, that is my horror yeah. is, is a slow drawn out death. That yeah, is yeah, yeah. just, and, and knowing that all of that, every single moment of that will be suffering. Mm-hmm. That's horrible. Yeah. It's awful. How about you? Um, I ended up choosing Christy, I think just because the, the, I remember the first time watching and this time, it's still just so shocking the fact that she goes through so damn much and she still doesn't make it. Yeah. And it's just, it, it's so infuriating. I remember walking out of the theater so mad because like, I mean, you're meant to kind of, I think, be rooting for Liz as kind of the final girl. I think that's how she's presented. Um, now, granted, obviously, that's not how it ends. But I really think that's kind of how, at least to me, that's how it was portrayed, how I kind of examined the situation was she she was kind of meant to be that role. I don't know if that's was on purpose or not, but... That's the feeling I got, that she was definitely our lead and our kind of quote-unquote final girl, mm-hmm. which... We don't get a final girl, we get a final boy. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, nonetheless, and especially I think, you know, Christy's gone through so much. She's on literally her knees. She's been through shit and execution style right to the back of her head, to her back, shot dead twice. Like, he doesn't even give her the grace to just do it and walk away. Yeah. He just does it twice and then just picks her up and puts her in the trunk it's it's just it's infuriating i was just so mad each time because it's like we can't even have one person come out of this okay i mean ben i guess technically but yeah and that's another frustrating part is you know the girls are the ones that we really see go through it they are tortured horribly they're put through all these painstaking events to try and escape and every at every turn they're thwarted and all of it turns out just to be for naught. They mm-hmm. both end up dead. And then on the other hand, we have Ben, who once all this starts to go down, we never see, except for that three-second clip. Mm-hmm. And then when we do finally see, he's allowed to escape. And it's like, well, we don't care about this guy. The people that we cared about and were in it with, they're already dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it it makes, yay, we're glad, you know, that Ben survived. Good. One of them makes it out, but it's, we aren't invested with him anymore at this point. Exactly. Yeah. We, we, we're already shattered. (laughs) (laughs) We're already broken inside. (laughs) But again, you know, at the end of the day, ultimately what you are here for is Mick Taylor. Yeah. And, you know, he lives on to just be horrible another day. And, you know, you get a sequel, which I have heard is for a sequel is actually pretty good. I'd be interested to watch it. I'd totally be down to watch it. I'm usually not that pumped for sequels, but when it's a big franchise like this and you're there just for the fun of the villain and the kills, bring them on. I'm all for it. Yeah, I agree. Well, then I guess that just leads us to our last question, which is, are you going to leave this in the dead zone or put it in the vault? Uh, I I think without question, this goes into the vault. Yeah. You know, it's, it is the creation of another fantastic horror villain in Mick Taylor. 
and yes, I was terribly bored with the first half of this movie, but it really does make up for it yeah. in in that second half for me. Yeah. And I just had an amazing time watching this guy just be as terrible as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's what I was here for. And I will come back for it again. That's saying a lot if you can get me excited about a sequel. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's definitely got to be Vault. I agree. I think so, too. I think uh, not just for the fact that this guy's like crazy and we're here for the gore, you know, and that's what as horror fans we enjoy and everything like that. Uh, but just the fact that he plays it so well and, you know, diversifies his reactions to things. And like I said, his emotions and how he can play them up so well. I think that also kind of gives him a leg up in the kind of villain game because a lot of our villains are masked. And so we don't get those emotions. Right. And so they're just kind of like a walking monster. Whereas this, we're getting a human emotion behind that. And so I think that only further makes it creepy. Um, and, and that's why the franchise can only keep going and, and get greater because this guy's just going to keep getting more and more sadistic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, if you think about it, these other horror villains that we have, these, these Freddies and Jasons, there is something supernatural about them. There's mm-hmm. something there that keeps them alive and keeps them going. But with Mick Taylor, this is a human being. Mm-hmm. And that's what's most terrifying of all is when you realize the things that these human beings mm-hmm. are capable of. Yeah. And that's really terrifying. Yeah. Spooky and creepy. Wolf creaky. <laughs> Bloody fair dinkum, mate. Yes to that. (laughs) Well, that's going to do it for us. Episode 35 is... In the can. In the can. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Dead Zone Drive-In on your favorite listing platform. And if you're looking for a way to support us, we would be so grateful you would leave a rating and or review and if you screenshot that review and send it to us we're gonna send you your very own dead zone drive-in sticker for free that's no money's honey you can find us on facebook instagram and twitter or you can email us at deadzonedrivein at gmail.com and if you want to reach us by snail mail our address is p.o box 12665 oklahoma city oklahoma 73157 if you want to hang out with us and fellow late night weirdos, check out the show notes for links to our socials and our Facebook group, the Dead Zone Drive-In Discussion Room. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to check out our Letterboxd, link down in the show notes, where I track all the horror we watch inside and outside of the screening room. And lastly, for next week's screening, we'll continue our trek through spicy Australia as we break down the 1981 thriller Road Games. So if you want to check out that trailer, don't worry, we've got you. This link is also down in the show notes. And a big thank you to our house band Slime and the Maggot Boob. They truly know what it sounds like when doves cry. What does it sound like? You have to ask them. Hmm. And remember, if you're looking for the Dead Zone and want to join us for a weekend screening, if you've listened to this episode in its entirety, you'll have been provided with all the information you need. Don't forget your tickets. Good night, folks, and please buckle up. We'll be waiting for you. Amid all the party craziness, our trio momentarily huddles together and jig... And jig. <laughs> what, were you, what did you mean to say? And Liz jokes. 
I also like that they huddle together in the corner and jig. <laughs> it would have made the first 30 minutes of this movie so much more interesting. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> 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 We're jigging. We're gonna get our backpacks and go on a trip doing the backpack jig. Folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.